Hey everyone, this week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by gtechnology and filmtools.com. G-Technology is a leading brand for professional-grade storage solutions for the media and entertainment industries. Since their inception in 2004, G-Technology has consistently offered reliable, high-performance hard drives. If you're in the market for some new storage, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out the hottest product offerings from G-Technology. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Richard Chu, ACE. Richard has had an award-winning career as an editor since he won a BAFTA in 1974 for The Conversation. He was also nominated for an Oscar and an Ace Eddie for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He won an Oscar and was nominated for an Ace Eddie for editing Star Wars and was most recently nominated for an ace eddie for Shanghai Noon. His editing career started in 1968 with documentaries, and in addition to the award-winning work that I just mentioned, he has cut films including Risky Business, Waiting to Exhale, I Am Sam, Shanghai Nights, and Bobby. Today, Richard and I discuss the cutting decisions of many of the movies in his long career. I was watching My Favorite Year, and you let so much of that play on two shots and wide shots, which I think is great for, for comedy. Is is that something you agree with? Well, um, in that case, for sure, because of the confidence uh, of the direction and of the actors. I don't normally do that because, as you know, a lot of editing is to compensate for the lack of timing, the lack of performance, whatever, and that's why we cut. I am not a fan of uh, of making cuts for the sake of making cuts. In the case of uh, my favorite year, Richard Benjamin, even though he was a first-time director, has been a stage actor and has been, I don't know if he's a director stage, but you know he's worked with people that had the timing down. And then, of course, this was in the days, what, almost 40 years ago, where there was a rehearsal period, too. And uh, between that and these veterans, uh, from you know Peter O'Toole to uh, Joe Bologna and Bill Macy, people like that, it, you know they had timing down, they had the reactions down. So you know you didn't want to interrupt what they were doing. There were also a bunch of great, I, I call them like answer cuts. Where and I've talked to other people about this too, the idea of a transition between scenes where. The end of one scene calls for something that's at the beginning of the next scene. I think that's a really good term. I hadn't uh, heard that term before, but you made, I, it up. you made it up, and I understood immediately. And uh, it's exactly the kind of thing that you want uh, as a transition. Some of them were written, and some of them came about in the cutting room during the course of my uh, the early part of my career. You know, I would learn things that later on I can apply and transitions was one thing that was always you know really important to me as I learned how to use those because you know much of how things are written at least in those days I, I you know the, the style and the form has changed a lot but I think uh, scenes in the past had always uh, beginning middles and ends and a lot of times the end would kill the momentum 
mm-hmm. of the story moving forward. So, you know, you can get out of it earlier uh, and, and get into the next scene, you know, you have that momentum. So I think uh, answer cuts is, is one way to do it. Sometimes going from one place to another and, and having somebody walk there, drive there, is, is literally shoe leather that should be deleted. But other times it's very critical for the audience to get into a new place or to have a breather or something. And in my favorite year, there's a scene where Swan and Benji go to Brooklyn to see his parents, and we actually watch them drive there. What, what, was, what was the purpose of that, and why did you decide not to just cut and they're at, you know, knocking on the front door and the uncle opens the, the door? Well, several reasons. One is it's a period picture, and you want to be able, wherever you can, to kind of reinforce that notion of its periodness. And it was important there since uh, the majority of the pictures are interiors, that whenever you have a chance to use an exterior, you would. I agree with you, uh, shoe leather in many cases interrupt the momentum of the story, but in this case we wanted to establish period, uh, the difference in the neighborhoods, because we're in Manhattan where everything is glitzy, and we wanted to show them, one, in a period car, two, driving into a residential neighborhood in Brooklyn. And uh, because we were going to come out, I mean, it was a setup for when they came out uh, to be greeted by neighbors and, and followed by neighbors. And uh, if we had set it up beforehand, that when they pulled up, it was just kind of, it was nighttime. Uh, there wasn't any activity out in the street. Obviously, everybody were in their homes. But to contrast that, with the end, when they came out and they were bombarded, or at least Alan Swan was bombarded by fans. So it was a setup kind of for that joke, too. And it kind of fit with the style of that period where people wanted to kind of see where you were going and all that. Today, you know, in the modern idiom of cinema, uh, much of that is understood. And, you know, if, if it's uh, if you're varying locations a lot, then it probably doesn't matter. But in this case, uh, the locations did matter. I want to ask you one more question about uh, my favorite year, and that is there's a big scene where um, he's confronting uh, you know, Swan about his failures and how scared he is of you know, doing this live TV show. And it's the big emotional moment, and it's played in medium shots. You see someone like, uh, or work with an actor like uh, Peter O'Toole, he gives you so much that even though he might not have the lines, uh, he gives it to you in reactions. And I think it would have kind of cheapened the moment, you know, to just to cut to his close-up to for either his reactions or his lines. And it is, you know, the story is not just about him, but his relationship with Ben. And because of the fact that they're two, you know, they're major you know, characters that have to confront each other and be honest with each other. And uh, we just felt it just would have cheapened it just to cut the close-ups because that would have been maybe too obvious to do. So we wanted to give it air and, and let it breathe on its own and, and let the actors have their own timing to it. So that's why we chose to play a lot of it, like you noticed uh, in the wider two shots, uh, because it is about the relationship between those two. You were talking, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to uh, mention uh, something that you made in your notes Jeez. about the transition to uh, the hot dog. Oh, yeah. 
So uh, this is an example of something that uh, I came up with in the editing room. <laughs> you know, this is um, <laughs> uh, you know this is the first time that I had a, a, a feature, a studio feature of my own, and I formed really a good relationship with not only a first-hand director like Richard Benjamin, but also with a writer, Norman Steinberg, and 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 Norman wrote really a, a very punchy uh, scene. And he knew that world of live TV and writing for live TV. And there was a certain level of humor that he did design in his script in some of the transitions. And that one, when I uh, assembled the scene for the first time, I realized it was really flat. It didn't have the punch that many of the other scenes that kind of a surprise. For instance, there's another one which he did that cut to uh, when he was trying to uh, ask for a date of uh, the girl. Uh, it cut to that note that he kind of uh, pasted together from like uh, cut out words from magazines like, you know, uh, a kidnapper would send to the family, right? Yep. So, you know, that had a brightness to it and a, a, a lightness to the mood. And uh, in the case of uh, Alan Swan, every once in a while I have to pass over the water through it. You know, coming out of there, I just kind of uh, cut to them on the street at the hot dog stand, and it was just really flat. And it just, you know, occurred to me to suggest that. And they were still shooting at the time. And it was just easy uh, for them to pick it up. And they all loved it. I mean, Norman loved it. Uh, Richard Benjamin loved it. I didn't even realize how much they loved it until when I saw my favorite year, the DVD, with the director's commentary track that Richard Benjamin would mention that specifically as something that uh, they really liked the idea of, so they went to do. That specific cutaway or insert was uh, your... Your idea from the edit room? Yeah, and even after they keep on, when they would see it, Norman would uh, credit me with that because frequently people in these Q&As after screenings, that might be pointed out, and Norman would always be generous in crediting uh, the editor who came up with that. So. <laughs> the first time I heard an editor talk about, oh, I was amazed at some footage that was in it, and the editor told me, oh, it's because I asked for that footage. I'm like, wait a minute, you told the director to go shoot something? <laughs> yeah, I was amazed. Yeah, well, I was amazed, too, because I came out of other pictures that, you know, the director just either followed the scripts uh, slavishly or was the fountain of all ideas. <laughs> so in this case, it kind of helps to work with a first-time director who's much more open to suggestions. Let's talk a little bit about I Am Sam. Do you remember the beginning of the that movie all starts with a series of uh, very close close-ups? You're, you're, you're in close-ups for a while. Do you remember if there was other coverage and why you chose to, to start with those close-ups? Yeah, wouldn't have had the impact if we left it in the looser shots because certainly he was shot in medium shot and in wide shot. And the notion behind this was uh, severalfold. One was to establish a cutting style that if we start with that, then if we used it later, 
it wouldn't be surprising. It would, would be within the grammar that we had established for the picture. Two, we wanted to reveal the character through the hands rather than being too obvious by going to his halting speech or how he moved his head and his eyes. Uh, Sean uh, Penn, you know, specifically, you know, worked on how his ha hands and his fingers would handle things. And every scene, you'd see that uh, he's, re he's very controlled in terms of how he represented or portrayed the character. And uh, he came up with, you know, how he would do that, how he would arrange the sugar packets, because that would be a revelation as to one aspect of his character, that he's trying to do the best he can to work for perfection, even though he, we realize later, uh, you know, he would realize his uh, imperfections. But in that case, it was within the realm of his world to be able to control that. So we wanted to show it on a microscopic scale of, you know, what his mindset was. I liked it because... I felt like it gave you an insight into the character without the prejudice of seeing him as a uh, mentally retarded or autistic person. Right, right, right. So we're holding that back. Yeah, I love that. Um, and, and there's a series of jump cuts, and as you said, you kind of, those opening close-ups are part of the grammar of the film, and you continue that with, with jump cuts throughout the film. Do you... Uh, there's a series of junk cuts as Sam leaves the Starbucks at the beginning of the movie. Remember, he he walks, he's walking someplace, either to a grocery store or pick up his daughter. I can't remember. No, yeah, he's walking uh, against that colorful wall. Yeah. He's going to the hospital because oh, the his, uh, the mother of his child is about to give birth. Right. So, uh, they, yeah, he let him, uh, his manager at Starbucks lets him home so he could go witness the birth. But, yeah, I you know, the, the jump cut, that was an idea that we talked about in pre-production. When I was uh, interviewed for the job, Jesse Nelson, uh, who had directed one film before this, uh, and in this case, Jesse Nelson was the co-writer and the director. The previous film she did, she was, what, criticized for it being too sentimental. Uh, in this case, I mean, she is a sentimental person, so she purposely hired Elliot Davis, the DP, to shoot in this handheld, erratic fashion. And because she wanted to have a visual style that was against, or that would slice against the sentimentality that the picture could be accused of being. Because the first film, it was a very kind of studied, lockdown camera very traditional composition. So in this one, she wanted it to be much more uh, spontaneous, had the, the camera operator, in this case the DP as well, respond to the moment. And knowing how Sean Penn would be unpredictable from take to take, this was an approach that she, as director, consciously made because uh, it would probably accommodate, you know, his... Uh, unpredictability as an actor and how he would portray the character. So early on, she thought, well, you know, we probably we're going to have to establish this early on because this is what we're going to do later. So that's why we kind of loaded it up. Maybe, you know, upon recent viewing, uh, you might say it's excessive, but then 
when would you introduce that style if you don't introduce it at the top? Tell me about that unpredictability of Sean Penn as an editor. Is that something that is useful or is it a curse? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a blessing and a curse. Okay. It's a, it's a blessing because it worked well with Dakota Fanning, who was in her debut film at the age of six. Wow. So Sean, being a director himself, knew that he would want to work with this young actor in a way that didn't seem stilted. Also, he realized that part of the blend of the characters, he's going to be working with some mentally challenged actors, people who have Down syndrome and so on, and that had its own unpredictability. I think early on, when I started looking at the tapes, I thought like, well, this is pretty cool because each tape is different because different things would happen. Some of the non-actors would step on his lines or, you know, there would be things that would be, that would uh, happen that were spontaneous. And that was great because I'm always looking for his response. So the blessing is that I got to cut a Sean Penn film <laughs> because I think he's, you know, he's one of the brilliant people on screen these days. It has been for years, ever since uh, that first picture he did with Christopher Walken, I believe. Uh, I can't recall the name of it, but he was a teenager in it. He was just great. So anyway, that's the blessing. Uh, the curse, of course, is uh, the lack of continuity. Yeah. And um, I come out of the school, I came out of uh, documentaries and in the 60s and early 70s, and we were always straining to uh, create the illusion of continuity because the stuff that I shot was all cinema verite style, you know, of actual life happening, and we wanted to cut it, and we wanted to not appear to be jumpy, so we try to create the illusion of continuity. Here, in this case, I'm working against that. Cutting stuff that, uh, you know, uh, that appear in different takes, but where I try to create the same moments, same emo having the same emotional value. So the curse of it was not being able to match anything, so that means once I decide on which tape to use, then I'm committed to that. Then he, because he would do the whole uh, scene, obviously, and uh, then he might be in a different part of the room or he'd be facing a different character. So you're wondering, like, oh, man, what trouble is this going to lead me to down the road? So that was the curse part. But, you know, it just it was fun to do because of the fact of, I think, the believability of his performance. And that led Michelle Pfeiffer to kind of break out of her accustomed way of working because she had to then listen and respond to Sean. So it, it kind, of, kind of what Sean did was kind of like dominoes. You know, once he fell a certain way, then everything kind of, you had to kind of follow that. There's a couple of beautiful montages, including the first one I can remember in I Am Sam is the one that leads up to Dakota asking about whether her mom's going to come back or why her dad is different or something. Were, were all those right. montages shot or scripted to be montages, or did you have to cut down some longer scenes and turn them into montages? Uh, yeah, it was uh, the latter case where uh, there were scripted to be longer scenes. In some cases, it was kind of a blend. In some cases, there were whole scenes 
that we condensed and uh, put it into a montage. And in some cases, they were meant to be a montage, like her growing, getting older on the swing. You know, that was designed that each time we see her, she would be a year or two older. But I love that uh, solution of cutting down or condensing uh, or travel through time by montaging it. It's a way that what they used to say, you can't solve it, dissolve it. So in this case, (laughs) if it's too long, just montage it. We would, uh, or at least I could come up with ways to do that. Uh, And and it's it's kind of a counter choice of the jump cuts because the montage has kind of softened it up whereas the jump cuts kind of gave it an edge. So it was kind of like eating with my right hand and eating with my left hand or something like that, you know, <laughs> putting the fork in both hands. One of the, the issues with that was where to play music. And once we realized, by and large, we are committed to Beatles music, even though it wasn't clear where we would use that, those songs, that the authenticity of Dakota's performance, especially those two coffee shop scenes, really demanded that they be played straight uh, without a need for support from a music cue. I mean, we, we, we would use some of the cues later on, which I can get to later on, like after the courtroom scene and he loses custody. But in the early scenes, we felt that we wanted to have the truthfulness of Dakota as the daughter and Sean as the father uh, reacting to each other. And, and Sean was just so, it was just so beautiful to watch his dailies because he's an established actor, man. He was just, he's a star and he's, you know, performing with this six-year-old girl who's never been in a movie before. And he was just so in the moment, you know? I, it, it was just incredible. So we didn't want to rob the pureness of what they were doing. No, I mean, the, the, the second scene in the, the, the second coffee shop scene, when they go to Bob's Big Boy instead of um, International House of Pantia IHOP. So they're big boys. And that waitress, I mean, she was just a gay player. But I think uh, because of how Sean <laughs> would do different things from take to take, when he really blew up, I mean, it really took her back. She didn't even know, like, what's coming next, right? And even the extras, if you kind of watch how the extras would react to him, you know, getting louder and louder and out of control. Those are just really, I mean, for me, uh, in the editing room, just a gold to be able to use that stuff. Another movie that you used jump cuts in that I loved was uh, in Shanghai Noon. There's the whole scene where they're smoking the peace pipe, and there's multiple jump cuts in there choice that, uh, but it was kind of, you know, part of the joke uh, to be able to rush through to the next moment, because Jackie did so much that we didn't see that the joke only had one punchline, and we just wanted to get to it sooner. <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 and we didn't really have the luxury of the, his fellow actors in that scene to cut to that would help further the scene so that was just a, a route that we you know took even though i don't, I don't think we used jump cuts very much later on no that was that's but, the only place um, i can remember is that one spot 
Um, yeah, it's a very traditionally cut movie otherwise. Talk to me about fight sound effects. Obviously, a Jackie Chan movie's going to have some fights, and I always felt like sound effects have such a big impact on the way the rhythm of a scene feels. Do you feel like when you're editing those together that you need to add the sound effects so you have the sense of that rhythm, or are you cutting purely visually? Yeah, in that case, I was cutting purely visually because Jackie has such a specific rhythm for each of his stunts. So talking about the barroom scene, the big tableau where he has a fight with like everybody in the room, it was just intriguing for me because, you know, other than Star Wars, I've never cut another action picture. And so this one, I I wanted the assignment because, uh, not that I'm a big martial arts fan, but because I was intrigued by the physical comedy of Jackie Chan. It reminded me of the things that I used to love uh, of Buster Keaton. Yeah. And But in this case, he would apply it to... Uh, martial arts or, or to fights and I thought I, you know I gotta get in on some of this see how the guy does it <laughs> you know he's very uh, specific with his fight team he has a whole choreography team that work with him so for instance that barroom scene once he walked through the set with his team they would discuss which locations which parts of the set they would use which props they would use how they would line up the uh, stunt guys. And it was really important for Jackie to teach his non-regular you know, team. He had like his regular team who were, of course, Chinese guys. And then there were like the American you know, stunt doubles or stunt guys. So he had to figure out how to integrate them because the guys that he'd worked with before would know his rhythms. And he had specific rhythms, just like you would as a dancer. You know, you step this way, you turn this way, you throw a feint this way, and then you roundhouse him this way. So he did things uh, on count. And so they had to integrate that and teach that to the non-Chinese um, stunt guys, too. And then after they shot those, he was very specific. The director gave to Jackie control over any and all of the fight scenes, whether they're in the woods, in the river, the bar room, whatever. So, you know, Jackie got the choose the takes that he thought was good. And he was very economical, even though he might do nine takes or 10 takes. We were shooting on film, but he would only print like, uh, let's say three. He was very disciplined about that. So he narrowed the choices down. So in the editing room, we, we didn't, as, as most people do these days, have to go through 10 or 12 takes, you know? So we would just have three, and then he was sent into the cutting room, his uh, stunt captain. And the stunt captain would look at the, the three that were circled with me, and he would say, oh, Jackie would like this one. Or Jackie would like this one. <laughs> As if Jackie was speaking through him, but, you know, this guy has been working with Jackie long enough to know what Jackie Chan would like. So it was it was really easy for me then because the choices were made really by Jackie and his, uh, his stunt captain about what takes to use. So then it was just a matter of then pining for me how I would stitch it together. And then also, of course, I got to learn how they did a lot of these when he was on a wire and, and things like that. 
that uh, I never had a chance to work with before. Uh, one of the questions that I had about those fight scenes was that idea of the geography of the fight and um, kind of giving the letting the audience know where stuff is happening instead of playing everything too close. Part of action fight scenes like that is you got to see the feet as well and the movement in it. And uh, since, uh, at least in his style, you know, his style is a whole body movement and, and you want to see as much of you know, where his movement is. But, you know, we have the luxury of having a host scene or several scenes take place to establish that set, that bar, from the very beginning when he walks in. And you get to see the wide shot, what levels, you know, uh, the bar was on. You had the entrance on one level. You know, you had uh, where the tables were in the lower level, and you had the bar over to the left. So throughout the scene, you kind of realize where everybody was, the mirrors and so on. So when Jackie's character moves around because of the fight, then you'd seen these locations, or, you know, the, the positions where everyone was before. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that in order to convey what he was doing, we would stay away from close-ups. I know the tendency is to see the reactions constantly of uh, the reaction to a blow or even throwing the blow and stuff like that. But in, in his case, it's the style is to show the movement. There's an intercutting of a montage of Owen teaching stuff to Jackie, intercut with a discussion between Owen and Jackie's new bride. So there's that one, and then there's also intercutting between the Carson City fight of Owen and then Jackie doing the duel and the horseshoe fight. And so talk to me about intercutting and kind of how you know when to go from one scene to another scene and go back and forth. It's the intercutting between what we call the cowboy school uh, yeah. or cowboy camp and Owen uh, talking with Jackie's bride, right? Yep, We're sitting exactly. on the chase. Yeah, no, that is all uh, made in the cutting room. I mean, the, the scene was written uh, more or less for Owen to be talking with the bride. And I'll reference back to Owen's style in another scene later. But, you know, you, uh, you might write stuff for Owen Wilson. I've seen this film. He doesn't deliver it the same way. Owen is such an instinctive actor that he adopts the character for sure. He adopts the idea or the intent of the dialogue. But what makes him such a, a charming character is that he, um, he finds his own expression of it. Um, he finds a way to say it where it sounds fresh. I don't know what his technique is. I don't know if he memorizes any lines as much as he just kind of takes it in and then he starts riffing the scene uh, on the log. He starts riffing on that, and he might stumble. And some of this, you know, he's just trying to be his character, Cowboy Roy, and he stumbles, and some of uh, his jokes might miss. So, okay, so we have that. How do you use sections of that? Because, you know, I have nothing to cut away to other than we had this gold mine of uh, this wide shot of cowboy camp and because that was just kind of shot with a camera just running 
And those guys were just kind of fucking around, basically, <laughs> trying to crack each other up. And they were coming up with shit, you know? Well, right, let's do this, oh, let's do this. And our job was to find the moments that we thought were the funniest and then rearrange them and, and try to figure out how to work them in pairs or in triplets uh, to be intercut with the scene of Roy uh, talking to, uh, I forget her name, but the, yeah, the, um, the native bride. So we thought, like, you know, it would just be a good montage like thing to kind of uh, have jokes between this visual humor and verbal humor. So, you know, that, that was that sequence. And that was, you know, an editing room exercise. The one about uh, the duel, right? Yep, so, it's dinner cutting. Right, the horseshoe fight. So, you know, that was kind of, that one was written to be intended to be intercut, but, you know, it was written in such a way, it was very general. Uh, you know, that uh, Jack would come out and uh, he's confronted by the bad guys. I don't recall if it was written that it was me a horseshoe that he was going to use, but he was going to use something to overcome the villains. The other one of uh, uh, the duel, the gunfight between um, Roy and the Van Cleef kind of character, you know, Van Cleef from the yep. Sergio Leone films, <laughs> um, that was written as structured but uh, Roy's uh, voiceover was kind of improvised in voiceover later. Ah. So, you know, he would come up with some of that stuff. I don't remember which lines were written, which ones he came up with. But, you know, since it's off screen and it's voiceover, you can use anything you want, right? So, again, it was a pick and choose kind of thing. I mean, it was great. We had, it's, it's almost like uh, having a menu and you're going into In-N-Out Burger. It was like, what combination to drive one with burgers and fries? So, but Jackie did come up with the director, Tom Dye, uh, using the horseshoe. And that was something that Tom Dye, I think he saw something when he was researching in China and he was traveling with Jackie. He saw something similar to that Maybe not with a horseshoe, but with a different prop, some kind of metallic prop and on a rope. So he asked Jackie if he could come up with something, you know, to be used in the movie. So Jackie came up with that whole horseshoe thing. So he kind of invented that stunt. So, you know, it was a matter of they shot all that in, I forget, one afternoon or one day. And then the other one was shot separately. And it was, again, a matter of isolating each stunt, like in the horseshoe case, isolating how Jackie dispatched each bad guy and kind of breaking up those moments with the best moments uh, out in the street on the other side of the building of how Roy was trying to avoid uh, drawing his gun. So again, it was kind of a pick and choose uh, kind of editing room exercise. I'm gonna jump ahead or back in the movie to uh, the scene in the jail cell when they come together. Oh, yeah. The big thing in, in this movie, as in some of the other movies that I've worked on, is when in the movie, in the course of the running time of the movie, do you bring together the main characters? Yep. Because in 
in some films, your main characters don't meet until, what, half hour in, 40 minutes in, maybe 50 minutes in, because you introduce them each singly, perhaps, at the top of the picture. Well, in this case, in Shanghai Noon, these two characters kind of meet, but in adverse circumstances on the train in the first, basically, what, 15 minutes of the film, and then they uh, split, and if you've done your job as a storyteller in this film to establish a likability in each of these characters so that you as an audience feel invested in Roy the Cowboy and in Jackie, this Chinese warrior, if you feel invested in them and they are separated, then the task is, okay, when you bring these guys back together again, because I want to see what they're going to do when they come back together. So that was a challenge for us. Now, in the final film, what you see after that scene on the train with the, the bad, bad guy releases the logs and the logs roll off that one uh, train car and it uh, separates kind of Roy from Jackie and Jackie goes off the, the locomotive train yep. and they, so the train separates. Well, there was a whole sequence of Jackie when he realizes he's on a locomotive that's a runaway locomotive because somehow, I forget now, if the train engineer got shot or something like that. But anyway, the train's going forward and it's, it's out of control or it's, it's not uh, uh, under control. There's a whole sequence that's, that Jackie had planned and the, and the director had planned. I mean, it was an expensive uh, sequence. I understand it took like a million dollars to create and shoot it and stuff like that because the locomotive heads toward, of course, the precipice, you know, at the edge of a canyon. We build up this sense of, can Jackie stop the locomotive before it goes over the side? And uh, we, we spent like probably, it was like a five, four, maybe four minutes at least, four to five minute sequence. And it was exciting, you know, because of the physical comedy and physical sense in it. But ultimately, it didn't add anything to the story moving forward because all we saw was like Jack in his own dilemma. Same thing with Owen's character. There was a whole uh, scene that was really funny of how the other guys in his gang turn against him and bury him in the desert. And it was hilarious. So we just kind of took out those that pair of picture of uh, scenes so that we could accelerate uh, when those guys would come together again. So, of course, then they come together again in the bar, and they end up in the bar fight, and they end up in jail. The task then for me was how to bring them together in, in the jail once they're alone now. This is the first time that they're alone. And Jackie did this wonderful thing where he didn't really understand some of Owen's um, improvisations, he was a little puzzled by it, so he became really stoic because he didn't know how to react to some of the stuff because Owen was kind of rooting. And he would even miss some of his own lines and stumble over them, and it was a mess to edit, I mean, to try to extract from it, which I originally did try to extract the original dialogue from it. Um, but then the, the part that I wa wanted to preserve to use was Jackie Chan's quick reaction, his resistance 
to warming up to Owen. So I played for as long as I could without cheating, you know, by like double printing or anything like that. Uh, his not giving in to Owen. And then at the same time, I was trying to find all those moments where he's trying to uh, get Jackie to break down. And because he realized this was kind of a, a game between them. He's like, he's, he's trying to win over Jackie. So that was really wonderful for me to try to, you know, um, expand that time because early on they met under different circumstances and now in a way meet each other so how do i bring them together here um, by their interaction and that was probably uh, another scene that i had a lot of fun cutting because those guys were so funny i mean you know I, it was because i would be i even was breaking up when i was looking at it again the other night and and it was probably heavily improvised. It sounded like that's kind of Owen's style, if not Jackie's. Right, exactly. That was what was so interesting, this pairing, that it worked for those characters. Here's a guy, supposedly, that doesn't understand English very well. And then the other guy is constantly, you know, kind of a con guy. <laughs> you know, he says anything in order to get what he wants. So it was really a great pairing. Yeah, that's frequently the task. Uh, what editors have to do is to... Uh, figure this out because in scripts, the scripts they want to flesh out everything, which is the the job of the script, you know. Because with a screenplay, you're trying to attract. It seems to me you're trying to attract an actor. You need actors who want to do this, so you want to give them as much uh, red meat as possible. Like, man, you got all these scenes and you got all these lines, you know. Don't you want to do this part? And of course, it makes it much more attractive to an actor to realize, oh, they got this whole backstory and all this other stuff. But then when you get into the cutting room, you figure out, like, man, talking about shoe leather, this is like, you know, character shoe leather. I mean, you don't need this stuff because, you know, you want to get them together. Let's talk about Bobby for a little bit. So you um, said you started as a documentary guy, and one of the interesting things I thought was your use of a documentary section where Bobby goes to a coal mine most of the film, for those who haven't seen it, is, um, you know, it's with actors. It's with, with a huge cast of actors, great actors. Um, but occasionally you're cutting to uh, actual footage of Bobby Kennedy. Even though it was news footage, to me, you made it very cinematic. Well, there's a whole backstory to that, which we can talk about or you might find interesting because it involves Harvey Weinstein coming into taking control of the picture. This may or may not be interesting because this is outside the context of what you see in the finished picture. But uh, I, th I think in itself it makes an interesting story and then I'm going to take you there and then we'll come back around. Emilio Estevez, even though he's an actor, he's really a writer at heart. Now, he started in his 20s to write scripts uh, even before he became known for, uh, I think he the first film that was made out of one of the screenplays was about the same time he as an actor did a Repo Man and Breakfast Club. Got it. So he, he was writing screenplays back in his 20s that got produced. Anyway, in this uh, case of Bobby, he uh, wanted to do a film about the assassination of Bobby, but in the style of Grand Hotel, the Lubitsch film from the 30s. But he did not want to make the picture about Bobby until Bobby comes into the ballroom, basically, and makes a speech and gets shot. 
he wanted to make a movie about all these other characters who are going about their lives like we all do. And, you know, that was part of the idea. Like, we're living our lives, we're being unfaithful to our wives, and we're just trying to, you know, do our jobs, uh, go to a baseball game with our dad, and so on. Emilio um, introduced Bobby in the third act. In the script, Bobby only appears when he comes into the Ambassador Hotel and Anthony Hopkins' character greets him. And that was the first time that we actually see Bobby Kennedy in the movie, even though he may have been mentioned here and there before, but only verbally. We didn't even see him. So, uh, and then, of course, uh, we see him later on in the ballroom making a speech and so on. So that's uh, how the movie was shot. So the times where you see a television set uh, in the various hotel rooms with the other characters, uh, what was on the TV sets were stuff that was going on that day that did not anticipate Bobby Kennedy. It would be a, there would be exercise videos. There would be a kid's cartoon. There, you know, there'll be stuff, uh, a cooking show or something like that. That was what was going on there. That was our early cut of the picture. We didn't have enough money to really finish the rest of post because we had music to go. We had a lot of uh, documentary footage to purchase. We, we needed an uh, influx of cash. Uh, Harvey Weinstein saw the picture, loved it, and he being kind of a, a little uh, Democratic supporter and uh, a friend of the Kennedy family that goes way back, said that he would distribute the picture and he would pump, you know, a lot of money into it to help us finish it. But <laughs> it came with a clause, finish it the way he liked it. He helped the picture and he hurt the picture. I mean, in seeing it the other day, I realized, like, oh, some of these things did not have occurred if it weren't for his uh, idea. And some of these things became worse because of his ideas. So it was like, uh, it was a kind of a strange reminder of uh, blessing and a curse idea, you know, of, of his involvement. So one of the main things that I thought was positive of what he did was he, he thought, hey, uh, this was in 2006. He said, when it comes out, most of the people that will see this weren't even alive in 1968. So they have no idea who Bobby Kennedy is, or they were so young that they didn't know. So you have to establish up front what the times were like and who this character is that you're going to be mentioning later. So he wanted to have this prologue to it. So he, in New York, hired like a post to cut a trailer like uh, opening. But I went to do my own. So uh, Amelia and I worked together and I put together that, I think it's like three, three and a half minutes montage to establish the times and then who this character is. So that by the time he's mentioned, by one of our characters in the film as written, we would know who he is, and hopefully the audience would know who he is. And then, I don't know if it hurt or helped, but Harvey insisted that we replace all the programs that were on TV, the cartoon programs and the cooking shows and all that stuff, 
we replace those with either news about Bobby Kennedy or his campaign ads so that his presence continued through the picture until he appeared in person. So then we had to, you know, find archival footage of him and do the visual effects of, you know, putting him into the TV screens and so on. So by the time we got to the sequence that you're talking about, where he goes to Appalachia to see how poor the people are then, that was, I think, the first time he was really full screen and we gave him like a minute, minute and a half. You know, I made some cuts in that original news footage and did some of that voiceover, you know, in the style of a, a film where he's actually being interviewed and then we cut away to some later footage of him going in, looking into the schoolhouse or into the homes of other people and then just continuing his voice over that and coming back to him finishing the interview. So that was a little more, you know, movie-like, I suppose. But, you know, we had to find a place for it, too, because we didn't have a slot for that originally. So that goes out of a scene where uh, Nick Cannon, the black campaign worker, was lamenting how they've lost Martin Luther King and now Bobby's the only hope. So that was a good spot for us to uh, plug in this new material at, um, you know, Harvey's insistence. So I don't know if it hurt or helped us that we insert a lot of the stuff. And then the other area which he insisted on, which I'm not sure helped the picture, was to cram in as much music, pop music, source music from 1968, as if this would make more convincing that where these characters are in that time. So the music supervisors, they just worked tirelessly <laughs> submitting songs First, Emilio would uh, would like it, and then it would have to be, you know, uh, played for Harvey, and Harvey would say yes or no, and then we would put it in, and then we find out it's too expensive, we had to take it out. So there was a whole dance around what music to use. And I'm not sure it really helped, because it got to be so busy with that, that you wonder whether it was useful of stuff prior to coming into the ballroom when people came in, you know, for his uh, victory speech. Maybe it kind of worked there, but anything prior to that seemed a little excessive to me now in retrospect. You know, one other thing I wanted to mention about how Harvey's, I hesitate to use the word interference, but his input, let's put it this way, his input really changed the tenor of the picture in so many ways, including the closing credits. The song is sung by Aretha Franklin and Mary J. Blige. Uh, it was about the, uh, ever keeping the faith. Amelia and I had cut originally, the closing credits were gonna be over the funeral train that carried Bobby Kennedy from New York to Washington, D.C., to the Arlington Cemetery. And what was moving about that was all the people that gathered at the train stations and along the train tracks that were waving or paying tribute to Robert Kennedy on his funeral train. And Harvey made us take us out, take it out, and use instead 
a montage of photos of the Kennedy family, including John and, and the brothers and Ted and so on. So it became like this tribute to the Kennedy family. Yeah. So, you know, it became crazy for us because it wasn't something that we agreed with, but he did provide the funding for us to finish the picture. One of the edits that uh, probably most editor, non-editors would notice, but I loved it, was there's a great match cut between the fictional ambulance being loaded with Bobby's body and a real ambulance from news footage of it being loaded. It was, it was interesting how I um, had to just, you know, cut together most of that because of the time pressures. I had to cut together that whole sequence with the staged production footage. And then as uh, archival footage came in piece by piece by our researcher, Deborah Ricketts, then I had to find places to, to insert them or to see if they we wanted to use them. So that, you know, the, the archival shot of that came in at a different time, long after I had you know, put together that uh, sequence. So it was kind of, it was kind of uh, an odd way of working, for sure. Do you remember building that tension? I mean, the sound and the editing and the pacing as Bobby heads towards the kitchen. For those of us that, you know, knew what was going to happen or the people that knew, oh, yeah, Bobby Kennedy gets killed in a, in a hotel kitchen. As soon as you see that he's going to a hotel kitchen, you know what's going to happen if you know history. Right. Talk to me about building that tension as he heads for the kitchen. Yeah, I mean, that was I mean, the first time I've had to uh, put together something like that where everybody knows something's going to happen. It's almost like a horror picture. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, <laughs> Jason's going to come out of the closet. But when is he going to come out of the closet? So you try to throw in some curveballs in there. Like, that's why we use that, that point of view of looking at all the people in the kitchen to see, like, where... Strand's is going to come out, when he's going to pop out. And there was this constant, um, you know, between Emilio and me, like, okay, do we do it here? Or we're going to delay it a little longer. Do we want to do it here? When we're going to do it, you know, later. So it's kind of a balance between misdirection and then finally, you know, revealing it. And I don't know. I mean, now, because I know the picture so well, I would, I feel like, well, we, we uh, made this too long to do that. But constantly cutting to the hands and to the, to the approval, you know, some of the welcoming expressions of the kitchen staff and the campaign workers that are in there, and the anxiety, and cutting that with the anxiety of some of our other characters following him in because they're separated from each other by the crowd. It was uh, a balancing act of when we would do that. Now, originally, we had a temp score in there by Hans Zimmer that was used in the thinner red line. And it was that same kind of really long, sustained, kind of a, a long, sustained, low note of dread. You know, I think in the thin red line, this, this uh, cue was used before the soldiers went into battle. That was kind of our underlying uh, temp track, which really worked well. 
when Mark Eisen came in and did his version of the cue, he had that same kind of uh, tension, and I think that helped a lot. There's a, a use of Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, A Sound of Silence, and you pull all the production sound gets pulled out and you put in this track, and it's really important when you, like the exact moment you decide to actually bring that track into the into the montage or into the scene. That was such a major moment. Because I think in Strickland, when I was first putting together the scene and, and uh, Amelia was still shooting, and I looked at that, the actual archival footage of Bobby's speech, and it, it was not a good speech, one, because as is typical of these campaign victory speeches, he thanks everybody. Basically, that was the crux of his speech. He acknowledges all his campaign workers in California by name. It was like roll call. And then at the very end, he says something like, well, let's go on and uh, win in Chicago, referring to the uh, Democratic Convention that was upcoming. So that was the, the only thing of substance that he said that we could use. And secondly, we knew if we played a speech there, it would undercut the speech that we would want to use for sure at the end. So it occurred to me, uh, and I tried this on Emilio, I said, don't get mad at me. I'm not going to use a speech, and I'm going to cut it out. What are you going to do? I said, I'll play it for you when you get here. I didn't do the, that means, I forgot what I'd used originally, but what I did do was to intercut his uh, appearance at the podium with uh, some of the footage of Vietnam. Because what I wanted to suggest was to use visual images that were implied by the substance of his words. So instead of hearing him talking about bringing the soldiers home or the toll, the carnage of uh, losing soldiers in Vietnam or the uh, civil unrest because of the violence and civil rights and stuff like that, I would just use images of that intercut with him on the podium, and that would suggest to the audience that that was the content. I forgot what I was using over that, but when Emilio then finally saw what I was putting together, he came up with the idea one day um, of trying Sounds of Silence. And uh, he said, hey, put this in. And I hadn't seen, I didn't know what it was, because a lot of times you just want to be fresh with it, right? So we had transferred and stuck it in. And the first time I looked at that song with the images that I had put together, it just it brought tears to my eyes. So I knew it was working for me, and he was happy that it was working for me. So then we just kind of filled around with where we would start it, uh, you know, how early or how late we would start it. So, you know, that's how that came about. Yeah, that's the kind of, uh, it's a good example when a collaboration between a director and editor works. Emilio is the writer and the director, and that presents its own challenges because sometimes you hear about people, writers, being very precious with their work, and other times writers realize that the editing process is part of the writing process. Yeah, I think it's the case for sure. He appreciated my contributions as an editor because he realized that I understood what he was striving for and that I could accomplish uh, with imagery what he was trying to accomplish with words. So 
in that case, it was a, a really fruitful relationship. And yes, that's why we've continued to work on several other projects since then, is because I think he realized that I can bring about, uh, bring about through imagery and juxtaposition of imagery the intent of what he had in mind on the page. Let me talk a little bit about uh, Risky Business. There's a lot sure. of POV shots in Risky Business. Do you want to talk to me about the choice of using those or the director's choice of using those POV shots? <laughs> That's part of uh, Paul Brickman's uh, humor. I think he wanted, to, for sure, especially early on, more particularly from the time, I think that early scene where his friend Miles says, every once in a while, Joe, you gotta say what the fuck. So we cut to the kitchen in his home and his mom is asking. So we first start with just staying on him as he's walking through the kitchen and his, his mom and his dad talking about his SAT scores and all that. And gradually we shift to his point of view only. So I thought that was really kind of uh, a clever, that's the way he shot it, you know? I didn't have any of the coverage, so I thought that was really bold for a first-time director. Uh, <laughs> don't shoot coverage, not to shoot coverage, and just to shoot it, like, one way. So first it was the parents' point of view of, of Joe, and then it was just Joe's point of view of his parents, like when they go to the airport in the car, and then when they go into the airport, and then finally we reveal you know, Joe in the airport waving goodbye. That was his, in his design and his script. Uh, a lot of those uh, angles uh, were shot as written, like the joke afterwards with uh, him pouring himself scotch, you know, pouring the Coke in it afterwards. And uh, even the point of view of his dancing. I don't recall it if he actually had uh, Joe sliding on the stocks, but he certainly, you know, uh, uh, had written that he would be dancing to that particular song. Again, in, 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 in that case, it was a, a very fruitful collaboration uh, between us. You know, it was one of the, a, a great experience because of how open he was to the ideas that I brought in to, to help the picture in certain areas. And I guess that's the case with any good collaboration between an editor and a director. I mean, the train sequence is probably one of the uh, best stories that I can tell about how that came about. Originally, in the script, that sequence uh, was described in just a very few sentences, very simply as something like, Joe and Lana enter the turnstile. They board the train. They make love in the car into the night. Something like that which is suggestive language, suggesting the circumstances without detail. Originally on location, Paul Brickman shot a version of it that uh, was, not, was incomplete, number one. Number two, did not have the passion in it that he felt it should have. It was very kind of a studied, too intellectual kind of compositions but there was some second unit stuff that he had shot of train bodies uh, in different sizes that he had intended more like establishing shots. He was shooting in Chicago. I was um, editing in LA. And it occurred to me that what he was intending from the terror of the script was 
to have a sexual climax in there, but we didn't have that, and you can't really kind of show it even in the 80s, of sexual climax, but I thought that if we could do that uh, visually, have a climax, then uh, it, it, it might pay off. And this was even music or anything like that. So I put together uh, with uh, the second unit coverage of train buys, I constructed it exactly the way that we see it in the final picture and intended it to be like the sexual climax. And I showed it to Paul and he really liked the idea and he set about to write a sequence that could be put in front of it to lead up to the climax of just the, the visual climax. So months later, he had to do some reshoots anyway for some other scenes. So he shot the whole front end of the picture where Joe and uh, Lana would enter the train, but there were obstacles first. There were other people on the train. So even though they were horny, the idea was we had to get all these people off the train and then wait. So it built in more tension into that scene. Like, how are we going to get these people off? And then, of course, he found that um, brilliant extra, the homeless drunk man <laughs> yeah. on the train. And that, that was just brilliant. That's so Paul Brickman, you know, to find something, a silent gag like that, that he could extend out. So anyway, he shot all that stuff. So when he brought it back and we started to work with it, and remember, this is like still in the days of film where uh, we didn't have the luxury of using digital creations. So when we started putting together the actual sexual part of it, I uh, thought that the way that it was shot, it could become much more mesmerizing if we uh, started to step print it and to create uh, an illusion of, of time slowing down. Mm. So, you know, in those days, when you come up with optical effects, uh, printing effects, I mean, it takes like a day or two to do because you have to make a dupe of the original work print and you have to send it to an optical house who has to shoot it in a certain way and then they have to send it to a lab and then send it back to you and then it would be in black and white, you know, and not even in color. And then you you would cut it in and you'd see like, oh, that doesn't quite work and we make this adjustment and you have to, you know, send it out again. So anyway, um, I have an assistant who... Uh, mathematically figured out which films to print how many times because we we warmed up to this idea that if we change the motion of it, it would then just make it just so sensual. We started doing that, Paul loved it, and then we got stuck with that two shot of Lana and Joel facing each other with the window in the background. But they were just kind of like long takes and, and many takes where Paul Britton was trying to, you know, get him to fake all the throws of sex and stuff like that. It didn't work if we cut away from that. So he wanted to just use several different uh, sections of that same angle. And this was counter to the jump cut nature of later films that we were talking about, whether it's Shanghai Noon or, or uh, Bobby, or I am Sam, we did not want to use jump cuts. It was 1983. So I came up with also the idea of what if we had established earlier how the lights go out on the uh, elevated train 
in the Chicago Loop because, you know, the trains, when they change lines, the lights dim momentarily and come back on. So um, I thought, oh, brilliant. You know, what we could do in connecting these without jump cuts is just a short state of black. So then that way it allowed us to use all these different takes without a jump cut. So it's just kind of the flow of ideas kind of came about like that. And then later on, of course, the discovery of the music was like a whole other story. Because originally, even though Paul had written um, to use the Phil Collins piece in the year tonight, we did use that. But we wanted to find a more erotic piece uh, for the second part of the scene. So originally, we used a different part of, uh, we used a different composer altogether, uh, a minimalist. A composer named Steve Rice that just had a lot of percussion in it, but repetition kind of looped percussion. And um, it happened that one of my assistants was playing Tangerine Dream out of his boombox down the hall in another room. And Tangerine Dream was really big at that time in the early 80s. So uh, we heard that and we thought, hey, because it had the same kind of looped kind of uh, a weird percussion. We transferred that on the bag film, and you know, that's a whole other cumbersome process again. And, uh, and just, uh, laid it in and sliding it around to see how that would work. And uh, you know, that's kind of gradually how that scene came together. And that's one of the more memorable uh, scenes from that uh, movie. And it came together kind of over, you know, weeks of experimentation practical question that uh young editors might be interested in hearing about is a lot of scenes have especially nowadays with cell phones have scenes with uh telephone conversations and that's a you know that's one of those things you gotta learn to cut right or you gotta figure out how to cut uh there's a scene like that between guido and joel when joel's trying to get the uh furniture back do you want to talk about that that was also an additional uh, scene that was in the reshoot. So probably one thing for uh, younger editors to keep in mind, this will probably apply even in scenes between characters in the same room, which is, uh, do you want to be on the speaker? Do you want to see the speaker of those lines? Or do you want to see their reaction? Also, you know, when you want to kind of change up the rhythm of uh, a scene by not cutting when a line changes to a different speaker. I like the use of, of pre-lapse sometimes, you know, to lead you into the next cut or to make you suspect that you might be changing the angle or sometimes you want to post-lap in order to see the reaction or the impact of a line over the listener. And sometimes you want to just make that cut on the part of the line that makes the most impact for that speaker. Or sometimes you want to make the cut to the listener to see what um, that character is, how he's reacting, what the impact is on that. So I try to avoid just kind of um, cutting always to the person speaking the line, unless you have a good reason for that because of the impact of it. There were great uses of reaction shots in I Am Sam. The moments that you chose to 
take them seems so organic and natural. And people have to realize the reaction shots do not have to go where the reaction shots went, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. You have to really dig, dig through the material to see like, oh, well, she did this, Michelle did this here, but maybe it would work bigger over here. But you don't want to rob the performer of what they're doing either, you know, because obviously they work really quite hard to plan their reaction over a particular part of the scene and you don't want to take away from what they're doing. But sometimes you have to do this very judiciously out of respect for the performer of, oh, well, she did this here, but maybe it'd be more impactful if I use it later in the scene. So in that scene, because it's so, in the courtroom, it's so talky between the antagonist and the protagonist. Richard Schiff as the prosecuting attorney and, and Michelle as being the defense lawyer. Yeah, it was really important to see, to help them, help the audience track how each of those characters are responding to Sean Penn's uh, testimony. Uh, yeah, that was particularly hard, I remember. I know that um, in our early email correspondence, we talked about, uh, you were saying, what, you don't discuss the conversation or go through the cuckoo's nest? As I've realized in the last, you know, more recently in, in my life and looking back over my long career, that those were films where I served basically like going to film school for me. And in the conversation working with Walter Murch particularly allowed me to learn how to restructure movies, how to restructure scenes in the storytelling. In the case of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, learning from Milo Schwornen how to use reaction shots, especially in the group therapy sessions, that all these other characters came to life, even though they had no lines, how we used the reactions and where they were placed. And it was invaluable for me then to absorb that lesson and apply it to places like we we're just talking about in Amsterdam, that reaction shots, uh, you really furthering storytelling and they're not throwaways to cover jump cuts, which was how I thought of reaction shots when I was working in documentaries. In documentaries, at least in the old school documentaries, as I was saying earlier, you're trying to preserve a sense of continuity. So when I was in documentaries, you covered up jump cuts by cutting reaction shots. So I think we were doing that um, with I Am Sam. Yeah, there's a couple of great reaction shots that I can remember from I Am Sam off the top of my head. Um, when Michelle is uh, cross-examining the like a psychologist and then she brings up the death or the death of the son or the overdose of the son. Yeah, come right. Right. You, you don't need to be looking at Michelle when she says that, right? Right. And another right. great one is when when uh, Michelle goes to uh, Sam's house and he's built that weird wall of paper. Oh, origami birds. Yeah, yeah origami, origami birds. birds. And, and then he goes off on her saying, you know, that people like her, you couldn't possibly understand what it's like to have problems. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. But yeah, I, I found new respect for Michelle Pfeiffer watching that scene. 
lesson for me was when you've got an idea like that show the director what they want first and then <laughs> maybe not maybe don't bring up something that radical on the first pass <laughs> yeah and I, I decided to do that when the book broke because I there were other things that I did that she liked so I had the confidence that uh, she might like this I mean if, if we hadn't built up something if she hated everything I'd done prior to that then I, of course I would not have to kind of jump around on topics a bit, how do you have your assistants set up your bins? You know, it's, it's nothing drastic. It's just that I have all 
like I did in, in film, have uh, all the takes within one camera set up, uh, attached back to back. So, say in the 68 Apple, uh, I would have one, three, five, seven, and nine kind of together because that used to work in the non uh, in the circle takes days where I didn't want to look at all the other B negative stuff. So it, it worked really well for me just to leap through the three or four so-called circle takes, the preferred takes at the time. And then I had that just you know, on a, its own timeline. One thing is how George, having been an editor or worked as an editor in documentaries, and, and was that he assembled himself from archival footage, some of this dogfight footage of uh, World War II uh, air battles between fighter planes, whether they were German or Japanese and American, he just kind of cut together uh, kind of a, a mashup of air footage. And that was one of the early things he showed me other than the daily. See, I joined the picture after it returned to America because he shot the picture in England, as everyone knows, and he had a, another editor working on it then, and then he fired him and went to America. He hired Marsha and myself, and then later Paul. But anyway, when he showed me some early dailies, and then he assigned to me my first sequence to cut was what he called the uh, gunport sequence, which is when Han Solo, when uh, Luke and Chewbacca and the princes all jumped onto the Millennium Falcon and they uh, flew off and they were being attacked by TIE fighters. And that was a, a blue screen sequence where all the characters were sitting in a cockpit or in a gun port with blue screen. And he wanted me to put something together for that because he wanted ILM to start working on the visual effects. So I had no idea what he wanted because these people just kind of turning around in their chairs, basically, or looking into the blue screen. So he showed me this uh, 16 millimeter uh, footage that he had uh, put together of uh, the dogfights in the air. So that's when I realized, like, oh, this guy's really an editor. I, mean, I, I knew that I really loved his early films, like GHX 1138 and, and American Graffiti. But until I saw what he put together in the uh, dogfights uh, of this uh, old footage, that I realized what an editor's eye he had because of how he was leading the eye in each of his cuts. So, you know, after looking at a couple minutes of that, I understood, like, okay, that's what you want. And that was a huge guide for me. And I, you know, oh, that was early in my feature career, too. So it's not like I'd worked with any other director that has cut together something that would give me an idea of what he wanted. So that was really instructive and, and that was uh, um, a memorable event. So using that, I was able to piece together uh, a cut of Luke and, and of Hans' interaction. They're kind of like, almost like two boys playing together in a uh, sandbox, shouting at each other what they had to do because that was the only thing I had to go by, the rhythm of their lines and their movement kind of circling 
uh, with their looks across the sky, which was the blue screen, not searching the sky, it was searching, searching the space. So just kind of using the movement, I understood like, okay, I'm just leading the eye here with these cuts as they're sweeping movements and the rhythm of the, the dialogue and the shouting back and forth, as well as uh, between the princess and Chewbacca. So that's one story. The other story I remember is because this was in the pre-digital age when we were uh, fabricating this on film, that one of the, the things that George had me do was to indicate on work print with a grease pencil how the laser shots were being directed across the screen. I was given like all these assembled scenes of stormtroopers shooting at our heroes using the grease pencil as to indicate what gun was this laser coming from and how it goes across the screen to decide in, was it in one frame or two frames or in three frames, you know, going across the screen that we're going to see the direction of the laser shots and the return shots. So it was very detailed as to what, where the shots are coming from. And then as we cut to the reverse of that, where it was heading, and then who is firing the return shot. So <laughs> by the time I would fastidiously go through frame by frame, marking with grease pencil where it was going, and to play it back, because the, the grease pencil left a much bigger mark, right, across the frame, <laughs> yeah. because of how fat it was. So you just kind of see, like, maybe it was like a cannon, <laughs> you know, shooting something across the frame and it became so confusing to see like all these grease pencil marks kind of shooting all over and of course the grease pencils when you put it on the frame they would leave an impression on the back side uh, you know, you roll it together uh, remnants of the grease pencil on the back side of a shot that was following it so it was, it was pretty crazy to watch all that. It's interesting that he asked you as an editor to do that because of the pacing uh, and the eye direction that those laser blasts would would then cause. Right, and then to, and to, and to mark, you know, like where the explosion would be with like a little star, you know, <laughs> like oh, it landed here. There's a little asterisk, you know, like oh, it landed here. And you know, he needed that as a guide. Then he would take that down to ILM on Monday. You know, like we would work with him like three days a week, and he would go down there like two days a week. What was the first feature film you cut on Abbott? Uh, Waiting to Exhale in 1995. Richard, what advice do you have to give about that kind of social engineering you need to do as an editor or how to best navigate the politics of the cutting room? It is uh, learning as an editor what this place is in the, in the cutting room and where you are kind of in the hierarchy of things. It's taken me many years to kind of work my way through this because I think that as a younger editor coming out of documentaries, there wasn't like as much of a hierarchy, at least the way where I came from, out of really independent, you know, I came out of working in television in Seattle and all that, and then eventually working in documentaries in San Francisco, you know, before I came to Hollywood. I always had an ego as uh, an editor feeling that, you know, I worked really hard on the sequence and I've come up with it and it's brilliant and 
don't you dare fucking change it. <laughs> and not realizing, of course, hey, I'm only part of a team here. I'm like, you know, maybe I'm the tight end here. <laughs> There's 10 other guys here that have to take into account, you know, what they have to do and how they feel about what they have to do. And I'm not the guy that's going to touchdown pass or, you know, throw up to me, throw up to me. I'm open. I have to realize that. And it takes a long time to realize that and that I'm just one person that, you know, have some ideas, but so did all these other people on the set. And, you know, since I think editors tend to be a little baby, perhaps, because we work in isolation. We're not on the set usually. Uh, we avoid that kind of cacophony and the chaos of it and not experience what a director experiences in getting barraged constantly, all day, by actors as well as prop people uh, as to how to do something. And, you know, as an editor, I feel like, hey, I'm the king in this, uh, on this throne in here, and what I do is, because I work so hard in examining all the footage, this is the way it should go together. And it's taken me, I think, a long time to appreciate how or to learn how to step away from that stance to realize as I've gotten older and more mature that, man, you know, I'm just here to, you know, contribute to the mix of this. And hopefully I, there's a good idea here that could be used, but it's not the only idea. And I think that when I've worked with, say, uh, I'm going to use an example of giving a scene or two to an assistant editor to put together, and sometimes there's a defensiveness that comes in reaction to critical comments that I would make, and when I see that coming from somewhere, someone else, then I realize that I must be doing this too when a director doesn't like what I've done or doesn't like a cut of the entire picture. But that's hard, I think, for younger editors especially to absorb, to understand Lee Smith, who won the Oscar a couple of nights ago for Dunkirk, which is very, yeah, very well deserving uh, Oscar for him. That uh, he said at one point after he thanked the director Christopher Nolan, and he said something like, "He says, and thankfully he didn't operate the machinery too, or he let me operate the machinery, or something like that." Yeah, kind of suggesting to me or implying to me that. No one was kind of in there like certain directors, you know, almost dictating every cut, except they're not operating the keyboard. I think that editors, by and large, understood what Lee Smith was saying and sympathizing with that and, and agreeing with that, that thankfully a director does value, but, you know, doesn't have to exercise every decision. Yeah, somebody asked me after I wrote my book, Art of the Cut, what I'd learned from interviewing all these great editors like you. And the number one thing that I told the guy was, leave your ego at the door. <laughs> because I'm like you. I, yeah. When I came into my first feature film editing job, uh, although it was my first job, uh, I'd been editing for 30 years. And so I said, you know, I felt like I knew what I was doing. And... And how you know? No, we're not changing my cut. <laughs> right, right. And it's something that I really learned over you know 
past getting through that one film, but also talking to so many editors that, hey, look, you, you do need to have an ego so you have something to say, but you need to realize that you're at the service of the director. Um, right. I have one final question for you. Um, you talk about as long or as short as you want to. And I, I'm just really interested in the, in the transition from Moviola or whatever you used before, Chem, Steenbeck, to Avid. And did you use any other NLEs? And what was it like? And, and what, what did you bring with you to digital editing from film editing? Well, one thing that I retained from film editing was how I organized uh, or have the dailies organized for me so I can work with it. In the film days, when I worked on um, the chem, flatbed, I would have assistants organize uh, the dailies in a way that made sense to me. And I retained that way of organization so it made sense, you know, for me to evaluate all this material. I was surprised at how quickly, uh, once I made the switch to digital, I could do things and retrieve things, you know, make cuts. But I found, though, still, it didn't help with the decision-making process. It didn't help with coming up with an idea. Yeah, it was faster if I were more literal in my cut to assemble a scene the way it was written and the way it was shot, no doubt it would be fast. And to examine alternate takes and so on. But I think most editors would value the coming up with the idea that there's a light bulb gone and the light bulb doesn't come on because you can do things fast faster. Having a nonlinear editing system like the Avid yeah, enables us to do things faster, but that doesn't enable us to come up with something that's really kind of cool, good, uh, better, uh, however you want to describe it. I like the distance that when I was working on film, I had just because it took me longer to do something, like maybe to retrieve some stuff that was still hanging you know, like a film, uh, a trim could still be hanging in the bin uh, over, been put away in a row, in a box, and I have to find that stuff. And in the meantime, I have this kind of some downtime to examine whether in my mind I can come up with a better solution. When you do stuff in an almost instantaneous fashion, out of almost reaction, uh, you may not have the uh, time to evaluate what you're going to do or how you're going to do it. Richard, thank you so much for your, the generosity of your time. I, I really appreciate this. Thank you very much for your hard work and researching the questions. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors, or my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, available on Amazon. Thanks again to my guest, Richard Chu, ACE. I'm Steve Holfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.